Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture at the intersection of technology and democracy. Welcome to The Sunday Show. We have a bit of a new format today, and before we start, I want to introduce you to a new voice, Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca Rand. I'm a science journalist and Tech Policy Press's audio intern this summer. I am so pleased that Rebecca is joining us this summer. She is a master's candidate at the CUNY Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Where we are now recording. This is a tremendous upgrade from my basement where I normally do this podcast. Right. All those delicious basement smells. 100%. Cat hair and fumes from the boiler. You know, cat hair is actually really good for, you know, dampening echo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Kick it. All right. Um, Well, this week, so I have some questions for you, um, Justin, about virtual reality, VR. XR. uh, XR. X, what's that? XR, extended reality. Uh, it's an umbrella term. Um, includes VR, of course. Also AR, augmented reality. Mixed reality we could throw in there as well. Other stuff on that continuum from real to virtual. Extended reality. All right, got it. So anyway, Apple's just released this new headset. The Vision Pro. Right. And it's like, well, the last time I heard about VR, excuse me, XR. People were basically making fun of Mark Zuckerberg and the failure of his metaverse. So now Apple's taking the same gamble and it's like, why? (laughs) Is this augmented reality stuff ever really going to take over society the way Zuck hopes it will? Look, I get the skepticism. We've been through multiple rounds of VR hype and bust over the last three decades, starting in the 90s, you know, certainly in sort of 2015, 2016, and years after, more recently with Mark Zuckerberg and his legless avatars in the metaverse. (laughs) Where are my legs? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the reality is that the devices themselves continue to advance. There's nothing in the physics that sort of means that we can't get to a point where perhaps uh, they are far more advanced than they are at the moment. Um, And the cost of the computer, the cost of the sensor, the cost of the graphic processing unit, all of it continues to go down. So even when you look at a device like what Apple has produced, which they're selling for $3,500, too rich for my blood, eventually, you know, that will be an affordable headset for many people. I see. That doesn't necessarily mean people are going to use it. Uh, And so we'll see whether people are willing to put these things on their head and enter into a variety of different applications that folks imagine. Um, I still suspect that the place where a lot of folks are going to start out with XR is in games and in the office. Gotcha. But one of the people who has been writing about exactly this question lately uh, is another thinker in this space, Britton Heller. Hi there. My name is Britton Heller. I am a visiting scholar at Yale ISP and an affiliate at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. So earlier this year, Britton hosted this conference at Stanford about extended reality, and she made a good point. It's actually artificial intelligence, generative AI like ChatGPT, 
that could actually be the thing that kicks the so-called metaverse into gear. Say more about that. Well, besides the cost and form factor of headsets, one of the big barriers, according to Britain, is that it's just not easy for regular people or even programmers to make content for the metaverse. So right now, that world is still a bit sparse. Right. I mean, the really embarrassing review about the metaverse in the New York Times was called, like, my sad, lonely, expensive adventures in Zuckerberg's VR. With no legs. Right. (laughs) And that kind of 3D interactive environment requires really specialized knowledge to create. Like, imagine if someone invented YouTube before phones had cameras, or before point-and-shoots could take video, or before Apple created iMovie. Only very particular people with the right gear and programs and probably some years of training could make content, and there wouldn't be much of it. But generative AI, you know, the same kind of tech that allows you to ask it to make a picture of a dog wearing a hat, riding a bicycle, that same kind of program could be used to render 3D objects in spaces for the metaverse. And Britton Heller says this is going to be huge. Generative content is going to change virtual worlds. I give it like three to six months when we see generative content really merging with virtual worlds and creating an easy way for a no-code or low-code solution to create these environments, to create objects in the environments, to create different ways that we can dress ourselves and interact with objects. So she thinks it's time that policy people start taking XR and the metaverse seriously, because even if it's perhaps a lonely, expensive world now in some ways, it won't be for long. I have to say, I'm kind of scared for what that world looks like because AI image generators have spat out some really just cursed looking stuff. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to see that in three dimensions. A lot of folks, of course, are freaked out about AI. Uh, Perhaps some of them want us to freak out. They're essentially kind of sowing fear in order to make their products appear more powerful than they really are. Mm. But either way, I think at this point, it's 2023 and some skepticism about tech is appropriate. Mm. So Britain is perhaps ahead of some folks. She's a legal scholar who works in new technology. One of the reasons she told me she hosted this conference earlier this year is because the metaverse is also this new venue that our current laws just aren't ready for. So she felt a bit at sea as a legal scholar. There were so many questions about how how do we govern virtual worlds? This conference was about sharing some of what we know about augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, and figuring out what we know about how they impact our bodies and minds and how the law deals with these new mediums. Got it. So... I guess I kind of have to ask an obvious question here, which is, why regulate the metaverse at all? Or, I mean, there are laws about what kinds of things you can and can't share online, child abuse imagery being an obvious one. Is Britton Heller saying that those laws aren't enough to keep the metaverse safe? There are some regulations about the digital world, like what you mentioned. And, of course, there are laws that apply in any world, the virtual or the physical. But the metaverse is different from the internet today, and it could throw a few new wrenches in our legal system. And I wanted to know from Britain what she thought those wrenches were. From your perspective, what's new here? For me, the biggest novel challenge that comes from XR 
is the way that this technology interacts with us physically and mentally. She told me this is pretty distinct from what we do on our phones or computers. It's actually quite different than the way that your brain on the internet functions. Because extended reality is actually a spatial medium, and we move it into a, a forum where your brain interprets it as real. Your body feels things as real. And it's the way that cognition interacts with computing that make this a little bit different. So she's saying it's about how our brains kind of take in this virtual reality that makes it a whole new ball game for the law. Right. And the thing she says is different is that once you put your embodied avatar in the metaverse, it starts becoming less of a question of what content you share online, like pictures or comments, and more about what you do or what's done to you. I place more emphasis on conduct or behavior because that is really the distinguishing factor. Wow. So this is becoming way less of a question about speech and images, and it's more treating the metaverse as an actual place where people's actions could have consequences. Exactly. And Britton pointed out that the technology is advancing to make the metaverse feel more and more real to us, especially when we interact with other people. When you're looking at a virtual world and potentially wearing haptics, you may actually be able to feel what it feels like when somebody virtually touches you. Got it. And because it's the internet, I can imagine it won't take long for people to start behaving badly towards one another. It's already happening. But is bad behavior on an XR platform really the same as bad behavior in real life? Like, it's never going to cause actual bodily harm, right? Well, one of Britain's big points is that in many cases, our brains can't really tell the difference. Your mind processes what happens in XR as being a real experience. And your mind and your limbic system and your heart rate and your pupil dilation and your skin moisture, everything in your body is reacting like this is happening to you. So crimes that might happen to us in the metaverse will feel real too. Like if the person sitting next to you is either screaming at you or trying to touch you inappropriately or committing acts of violence, why do we treat that differently than if it's actually happening in your physical environment? So at this conference about XR at Stanford, there was a panel about how harms in the metaverse could actually be real harms. One of the panelists was Dr. Marianne Franks, a professor from the George Washington University, and her biggest concern was about how violence against women would play out in virtual worlds. Is that a thing that's already happening? It definitely is, and it definitely has been happening for some time. Here's Dr. Franks. One of the first things we heard about as the metaverse began encroaching upon everybody's reality are allegations of sexual harassment, right? So one of the first things that apparently some users have done in virtual reality is try to figure out ways to make women feel as uncomfortable as possible. That is a tendency that we see with every technology when it emerges. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, I've heard how women are treated in online gaming, for instance. Absolutely. And one big problem is that law enforcement already doesn't really know what to do about online sexual harassment, even on regular old social media or in games, when, say, doxing or rape threats happen. 
And another thing Dr. Franks talks about is that tech companies often don't design these virtual spaces with women or sexual minorities in mind. Those are failing in some ways to recognize that this was going to be a problem. That is, when Meta was told about this problem, this is a big deal, this person was virtually groped, Meta's response is, oh, this person should have activated this shield that is possible, as opposed to making it a default, as opposed to making it something that was programmed into the design of the space and the experience. And there's really, at this point, no excuse for it. Um, There was a case back in 2016, virtual reality game, where someone who had presented as a woman had explained that she had felt not only all the wonderful experiences of this kind of virtual reality in the game, but that as soon as she was sexually assaulted in this game, of course, that also felt very real. For lots of scholars that focus on XR, there's something about this realness. Researchers call it verisimilitude, which basically means closeness to reality. That's really a double-edged sword in the metaverse. And when that assault in 2016 happened, Dr. Frank said people were minimizing it. And there was this very strange response of, you know, we care very much about the verisimilitude when it's positive things, right? Oh, it really feels like you're falling off a cliff or you're really putting on armor or whatever the case may be. But when it's, oh, you were sexually assaulted in in virtual reality, but that's not really real. Again, I'm not surprised. So a bunch of researchers at this conference kept coming back to the idea that sexual assault in the metaverse is real assault. And in our conversation later on, Britton Heller agreed. I'm a former prosecutor. And some of the the people who said they've been sexually assaulted in the metaverse, when I talked to them afterwards, they actually show the same type of behavioral patterns, speech patterns, and basically everything that I would look for in a physical sexual assault victim is present when people have claimed they've been sexually assaulted in a a metaverse-related property. Yeah, it freaks me out a little bit. That's... That's really interesting and also, yeah, pretty scary. I'm not sure that people who enter the metaverse really understand the ways that they're potentially going to be exposed to violence or threats by bad actors. That's something that really isn't addressed by tech companies who are operating these platforms. Not nearly enough. Dr. Franks, for her part, she didn't have a ton of faith that the tech industry would be proactive about preventing violence in the metaverse as they're building these worlds. That that tendency to design structures for people who have always had power, who have always been able to navigate these spaces with their interests already in mind, we're not taking the time to think about all the ways historically that we have seen new spaces, new products, new ideas are always used against those who are most vulnerable. And in particular, the kinds of harms that that will mean for women um, and people at the intersection of multiple forms of discrimination. Recklessness as a general kind of design concept, that would be the really broad-based concern I have. Recklessness as a design concept. Wow. What was it Zuckerberg used to say? Move fast and break things? That's sort of the ethos that a lot of Silicon Valley still operates under even as we've seen the devastating impacts that social media can have on our society or democracy. I think I'm finally starting to understand why Britain Heller wanted to get a bunch of smart policy people in the same room talking about how to regulate extended reality. I mean, do they have any ideas about how to hold these platforms accountable for the bad stuff that might take place in their virtual worlds? That's a good question. And this is what Britain said. Before I look for questions of accountability, I look for questions relating to 
effective rules and enforcement schemes. Okay, so where would the law even start trying to govern what people do in virtual worlds? Well, there's no simple answer to that. If there was, I don't think we'd have had to have this conference. But people had lots of different ideas about which laws could govern what crimes. You know, I'm actually glad we're talking about sexualized violence because I feel like that sort of represents the quagmire we're in. Even in the physical world, it's an assault both on someone's physical being and their mind. So that's already kind of straddling a physical and a non-physical world. That's an interesting point and and also came up during the conference. Some of the panelists, like Jameson Spivak, he's from the Future of Privacy Forum, he didn't think society would see virtual assaults as real assaults. A lot of the research that does exist shows that when someone is assaulted in VR, that the effects are similar physiologically and mentally to when someone is assaulted in the physical world. But I don't think that the courts and the general public are likely to see assault in VR as analogous to physical world assault. They might see it as intentional infliction of emotional distress, but probably not assault. So another panelist was Joseph Palmer from the Department of Justice. He thought one way around this was to categorize virtual crimes as computer crimes. There's all these puzzles about, okay, you do something malicious to somebody, but it's in virtual reality. In the prosecution business, we just have to use the tools that are available to us, especially at the federal level. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a potentially a pretty powerful tool that prohibits basically doing something in the computer that's against the rules of the computer. Still, other panelists, like Eugene Bullock, who's a law professor at UCLA, he thought it was unlikely the feds would want to get involved in people's online conduct in this way. Let's say that I show up in some virtual environment with a naked avatar. Let's say they could argue it's a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. My question is, how many federal prosecutors are going to actually prosecute that? My understanding is it's not easy to get federal government to prosecute unless there are missing millions, dead bodies, or kilos of cocaine. He was hilarious. He was so funny. His examples. He's very smart, but his examples were just kind of off the wall. Yeah, yeah. And another panelist, Amy Stepanovich, who's also from the Future of Privacy Forum, she thought that categorizing virtual misconduct as just computer crimes didn't live up to the seriousness of sexual violence. We're extending computer crimes well beyond where computer crimes should be extended in many circumstances. And I'd love to see us rely on the actual underlying criminal law wherever we can. She also pointed out that many victims would rather see people who violate them held accountable under actual sex crimes rather than computer crimes. I actually think there are important reasons when you're violated for a criminal to be pursued under certain crimes as opposed to being pursued under computer crimes. There are ways to recover from those violations that I think are bolstered by seeing the person responsible for those harms brought under certain types of prosecutions. Like actual sexual assault charges? Absolutely. I totally see her point, but I feel a need to point out, like, we're already just terrible at addressing sex crimes in the real world. Like, oftentimes police don't investigate it, prosecutors don't prosecute it, and juries don't convict it. Yeah, Professor Volokh also made that point. 
I'm all in favor of throwing the book at people. At the same time, we have to understand realistically the limits of enforcement in this kind of situation. It's not like we're great at enforcing sex crimes law as it is. Now, if we want to punish the harm, I'm all for that as a matter of moral principle. I just think as a practical matter, it'll be often so difficult that this is an area we should be investing a tremendous amount of prevention rather than relying on after-the-fact punishment and whatever deterrence it might bring. The really important question is how can we figure out really good security systems? Then someone in the audience suggested programming a swift kick to the groin into the haptics of the XR setup. But even that has its limitations. I love the idea of a swift kick in the groin of the groper or the masturbator or whatever else, but they're not idiots, right? If they have haptics on their VR setup, they will presumably have the haptics set up to disable the swift kicks in the groin. Yeah. Um, as funny as it may be as an idea, I also want to point out that it does put the onus on the person being violated to enforce the groper's behavior. Like, what's to keep the platform from collecting data and saying, oh, we noticed that avatars that look like women get groped, so guess what? No more female avatars allowed. Look, we're preventing crime. I mean, like we've talked about, tech companies don't exactly have the greatest track record on making online spaces safe for women and sexual minorities. Yeah, Dr. Franks talked about that earlier with how Meta said the person who got groped on their platform should have activated the shield rather than putting in the work to make that a default. I also feel like there's this argument that gets made to women who get abused online, like, just stay off the internet, as though the online harms don't bleed into the real world and just not looking at it will protect you. Like, just take the headset off. It's over. Absolutely. One of the things that I teach my students about is Gamergate several years ago. And one of the women being targeted in that harassment campaign, Zoe Quinn, she was getting rape threats, death threats, doxxed. She went to court trying to get it to stop, and a judge told her just to stay offline. I've heard the same thing from other women that I've talked to. When you say that, you're basically telling people who are targeted to remove themselves from a forum for political expression and participation. That has huge implications for their ability to participate in democracy. Definitely. And I feel like there's a bunch of laws that sort of enshrine people's right to exist in certain spaces safely free of harassment and targeted hostility, like the Civil Rights Act, protecting people in the workplace and at the polling place, or Title IX at school, or the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's this idea that harassment can limit people's ability to participate in society, in democracy, and more and more, the virtual space is that kind of venue. You're getting to one of the core things we work on in the tech policy world, which is how do we make spaces safe and preserve expression for as many people as possible? There's a real tension there. Hmm. I mean, are there any governments or agencies taking steps to start regulating the metaverse? So there was this back and forth between two panelists that sort of sums it up nicely. Susan Aronson, who's a professor of international affairs at the George Washington University, was talking about regulating technology. I don't really want to use the word regulate. I want to use the word govern. When we talk about regulation, I don't think anybody knows how to regulate, whether it's data, platforms, companies, et cetera. And that is a problem. 
when we talk about governance, governance tries to be technologically neutral. And I think in some respect that makes perfect sense, right? Because you don't want to squash innovation. She's talking about a kind of American perspective that's very pro-innovation. This other panelist, Florence Chazelle, who's a French law professor from the University of Lorraine, showed us how it's different in Europe. As I am the French scholar in the room and the European scholar in the room, I have to say that I will speak about regulation because regulating is something that we are very good at. (laughs) Over the past few months, I have heard that we should probably adopt a metaverse act. Since we have so many acts already, it's just one more act. We need to um, look at the user experience and we need to see how fundamental rights are affected. This is what we'll be doing in Europe regarding extended reality. We will look at privacy issues. We will look at what we call human dignity, family life, the rights of the child, and we will try to regulate on that basis since we definitely need to regulate. Back to Britton Heller, the woman who organized this conference. She also highlighted that the U.S. is not going to be the first place to look for regulation to happen. I think intergovernmental organizations are actually the place that I look for the start of this. Interpol announced for its 100th anniversary that it was going to create a metaverse-like presence for international law enforcement. Wait, is this like there's going to be virtual cops in the metaverse? This stuff is totally in its infancy, and it's mostly about getting international law enforcement familiar with the metaverse, even just as a training platform. But they're working with the World Economic Forum, Meta, and Microsoft on an initiative to define and govern the metaverse. Define and govern. I, I guess I have a question here about involving tech companies in developing policy. Okay. Well, I guess as a journalist, it just makes my skepticism alarms go off, like that organizations like this are partnering with industry to decide how to regulate them. I mean, I recognize that many tech companies have smart people who are doing important work on how not to destroy the world. These are, you know, for-profit companies whose bottom line is to grow and to please their shareholders. And some of them have, well, not the best track record of acting in the public interest, right? We've seen how industry has captured so many regulatory agencies in the U.S., the FDA, the EPA, and some would argue that these public-private partnerships have weakened regulation, not strengthened it. I mean, even at this conference at Stanford, you know, it was a mix of academics, public sector people, but there were also folks from OpenAI and Meta speaking. And no shade on them. They seem like really smart people who want to do the right thing. But can you just explain to me why these companies get to have a seat at the table when discussing policy? Like, what's their role? This is a can of worms, and it would probably take us another podcast to solve these questions. Uh, But I'll just say that you're right, that there are many of the folks working in policy roles and in trust and safety organizations inside these companies who absolutely want to do the right thing. And they are committed to advancing the thinking and the practice of trying to make people safe and trying to increase participation in digital environments. 
oftentimes, as we know, you know, as you've pointed out in your question, the reality is that their interests run up against the corporate interest or the interest, in some cases, of their billionaire owners. And sometimes they don't get what they want. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it is worthwhile to have them at the table in the sense that they bring a kind of specificity uh, and often nuance to some of the technical limitations and organizational limitations that they face when they're trying to solve these problems. One of the people in the room you're talking about is this guy called Joe Jerome. So Joe, I know very well, and he came out of civil society, out of a, an activist you know, kind of orientation, took a job at Meta, surprised a lot of people. Um, but he's a privacy fanatic and lawyer, and he wanted to go inside there. And he just got laid off like two weeks ago. So, I mean, they, you know, they're also the first to go often. So the good people who come in from the outside, and no doubt they get paid a lot of money, but um, they, they're often the first to go as well. You know? mm. And actually, Professor Giselle pointed out how the EU recognizes the problem you're bringing up and is doing things differently than the U.S. From a European perspective, we are very much concerned about the overwhelming power of big tech. It is now very common in Europe to highlight the fact that those big, often American companies, are super powerful and as powerful as states. Who do we want to regulate? From a European perspective, it would probably be those big actors that we don't want to be too powerful. In those extended reality environments, we don't want to see those big centralized platforms decide how our data can be collected. Yeah, let's let's talk a bit about big data and privacy. Are there specific data privacy issues that come up with extended reality? There are many, 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 many privacy concerns that come up with XR. Uh, you can think of it like this. When you're on your phone or computer, you're already generating lots of data about yourself that companies can keep track of and use for their own benefit, like what you look up, who your friends are, what things you click on. When it's XR, there's even more data to collect. Remember Jameson from the Future Privacy Forum. He was talking earlier about how judges or the public would view sexual assault. But his big thing is actually big data. Here's what he said. XR relies on large volumes and varieties of data, uh, sensor data about our bodies, about our environments, um, data from our devices about what we're doing on these devices, our precise and approximate geolocation data. Um, and altogether, this data provides a really intimate view of our interests, our behaviors, our medical, physical, or mental health conditions, um, and in the wrong hands. This could be used to make discriminatory decisions or other harmful decisions about people. And I should say, he's written about these ideas in Tech Policy Press as well. Mm -hmm. What he pointed out here is that there isn't really any comprehensive federal privacy law. There are laws that protect specific types of information, like HIPAA for healthcare or FERPA for education. But right now, once we agree to the terms of service when we use an XR application, we generally give the company a free pass to collect data on us and use it as they wish. And... Actually, eye tracking data is one of the big ones that could be really sensitive. Eye tracking data, how, how is that? So a lot of headsets now include eye tracking technology. Using a camera to track people's eye movements, ostensibly to improve the experience for the user. 
helps with rendering and also makes it clear on their avatar, what they're looking at. The new Vision Pro from Apple and the MetaQuest headsets both use eye tracking. But this one guy at the conference, Avi Barzi, he's an XR designer and entrepreneur, and he gave a presentation about the numerous intimate details tech companies could extract just from eye tracking data. Some of the types of things that we can get from eye tracking data what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? Uh, emotional responses, your pupil dilation. I'll just jump in here to articulate. He had this slide listing some of the things that could be inferred from eye tracking data. You can gauge someone's interest in a thing by tracking what they're looking at, like the direction their eyes are pointed, and how long they're looking at it. The thing he was saying about pupil dilation, that can reveal things about how excited or motivated people are. And there's a lot of really private things that eye data can reveal about a person. The fact that eye tracking data has already been used to detect things like autism, MS, Alzheimer's, ALS, schizophrenia, and used effectively. I mean, that's, that's pretty wild. Though I assume that's not what the VR platforms are really interested in. Right. Like most data, it comes down to ads and money. Here's what Avi Barzeev said. The advertisers are salivating over this, right? It used to be we'd collect the data on people, we'd improve the models, we'd use the data. That happened over years. But now we're looking at a world in which it can be done in real time per individual. And that's where it gets scary. Because when it's used for per individual, we can figure out what your triggers are, how to manipulate you to get emotional, to get defensive, to get how, into whatever state we want you to be in. Uh, and that's kind of dangerous. And another thing he brought up is that raw eye tracking data is not anonymous because you can easily identify people by matching unique features on their irises or retinas. Uh, yikes. I mean, this eye tracking data thing sounds like a huge vulnerability. I will just point out, it's interesting that Apple's approach to eye tracking data actually does appear to be built on some privacy by design principles. Hmm. So there are limitations they're putting on what access to that information third-party developers would have. Right. I mean, that kind of tracks with how Apple generally does with their user technology. Absolutely. There's this other guy who spoke, uh, Kent Bai. He has a podcast, by the way, which all you listeners should definitely check out. It's called Voices of VR, and it's a great look into the future of extended reality. Anyway, Kent sort of gave us a look into the future of what kinds of sensor data these extended reality setups might be using. Moving on to the biometric data from XR and NeuroRights. Wait, is where I think what did he say? NeuroRights? So uh, <laughs> Kent is a really smart guy, and he's a bit of a fast talker. He was given the difficult task of smushing that entire presentation in just a few minutes. He said NeuroRights, like neuro, the brain. Got it. Okay. Back to you, Kent. And NeuroRights. This is where I think the rubber hits the road in terms of what kind of keeps me up at night in terms of the implications of XR. So I went to the Future of Neuroscience and VR conference by the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research in 2019, and the head of neuroscience there was showing this latest research that was, you know, kind of implanting these different nodes into the brain. And so you have people who are just thinking a thought, and from that thought, you're able to use AI to do the speech synthesis. So it's able to basically translate your thoughts into words. So it's essentially mind-reading technology. Meta was showing the sort of early prototypes of what if your brain could, you'd think and it could type. So this idea of this brain-computer interface, they eventually um, stopped that in 2021, but they were working on these invasive kind of neurotechnologies. Invasive neurotechnologies. Oh, my God. <laughs> you see, if I go around and start telling people about this, like, Facebook wants to implant nodes in your brain and read your thoughts, people are going to think I'm insane. 
like tinfoil hat type stuff. Well, they did purchase a company that had the ominous name Control Labs, uh, which does neural sensors. Goodness gracious. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the world of tech policy. Anyway, turns out you don't even have to implant anything. Kent talked about a very futuristic headset that could take your temperature, measure your brain waves, your nerve impulses, and now with powerful AI trained on massive data sets, could infer what people are thinking or thinking of doing with much less invasive sensors. Here's Kent. Well, back in uh, 2021, there was a paper and a poster that was from Meta that was showing how you could just take hand tracking data uh, and combine it with head pose data and be able to extrapolate through AI the eye gaze data. So if you think about all those biometric inferences from the eye gaze data, now if you just have hand pose and head pose, you have eye gaze data, which is sort of fusing all this thing together. So the idea is that um, you have all these different biometric inferences and that you may think that it's pretty innocuous to have just body movements, but those body movements could be referring to all these other aspects of mental privacy. Wow, so you don't even need to track people's eyes anymore to tell where they're looking. That's right. And there are other sensors that can even predict our behavior, not just track it. So Meta has an EMG sensor that you put on your wrist, and it's able to isolate down to an individual motor neuron. What that means is that you can just think about moving, and that thinking, that thought about moving, the intention to move, can actually trigger a movement within a virtual context. So I will say, as someone who had the opportunity to visit Control Labs offices before it was sold to Meta, the mm. extent to which it was able to read a signal from your neural system mm. through your wrist and allow you to control an interface on a screen or a robot or an augmented reality experience. It was one of the most impressive and perhaps terrifying technologies I ever had the chance to see demonstrated. So what's it mean for a company to be able to detect intentions to move? Like, what are the human rights frameworks to be able to have an idea for how to put some guardrails into some of this neurotech? Yeah, let's talk about guardrails. Because again, companies like Meta do not have the best track record when it comes to protecting their users' privacy. That's right. And, you know, there were representatives from Meta on some of these panels who seemed very open to some of these guardrails, like Joe Jerome. I mean, that's great. But... Part of me wonders how much influence people like Joe Jerome have on how this tech gets developed. That's something that Dr. Franks, who we heard at the beginning talking about sexual assault in the metaverse, that's something she brought up. She kind of brought it back to your earlier point about how these tech companies are motivated chiefly by making money. And your data is a valuable asset they can use or sell to others. She took issue with Meta's Ego4D project, which basically takes data from first-person videos, like that might come from a pair of augmented reality glasses, and records and interprets what a person is perceiving. Dr. Franks pointed out that when it comes to privacy, technology companies generally ask for forgiveness rather than permission. What Meta is doing with Ego4D, which is this constant kind of reporting of the people around you as soon as they launch the project. The reporter asks, you know, what are the privacy controls that you're going to have? And Meta says, oh, that's going to happen down the line. So this is exactly not the right way to do it. And it does, I think, really underscore how you can't let the people who are profiting from this be the ones in charge. That's the worst possible approach we could have. Um, it'd be wonderful if there were some guidelines that uh, responsible companies wanted to take up, but it shouldn't be optional. 
So I think, again, the, the entire approach of just saying, oh, well, we already have this thing. Now what do we do to maybe mitigate some of the harms that have become public? That's completely backwards. These products, these services should be subjected to extensive testing to ensure that they're not being rolled out to the public in ways uh, that are just fundamentally unsafe. There needs to be some kind of preemptive way to get at some of these problems and not leave it up to either the corporations that really want to make money from these products or from individual users who have either opted in or not opted in. That can't possibly be the solution. There has to be something um, stronger, more robust, and more meaningful than that. Man, I'm with her. I mean, it seems naive to try to trust these companies to regulate themselves. I hear you. Uh, And I guess that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast, with Tech Policy Press. It's to get folks concerned about policy, interested in this stuff, and see that we really do need policy to step in here. Because as human behavior gets sucked more and more into the machine, like it or not, what protections will we have from each other, from the companies that exploit us in these environments, or even from governments who can seize this data and surveil us? Uh, well... I guess I got to go out and buy some tinfoil, you know, protect these brainwaves. I suspect that is always a good idea. <laughs> well, this has been The Sunday Show from Tech Policy Press, uh, not sponsored by aluminum foil companies. Thank you so much, Justin, for guiding us through all that. Thank you. and You're very welcome, Rebecca. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback, including on this new episode format. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening. And thanks so much to Rebecca Rand, our new reporting and production intern. You're welcome. Tech Policy Press.